Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a great time of being able to worship to you together. And as we continue that worship and the hearing of your word, Lord, I pray that you'll do a work in our hearts. For those who have been baptized, may we be reminded of that time and what you confirmed in our souls and in our hearts. And for those who have not yet to commit to baptism, may you lay a burden on their heart to obey the words of Scripture and the words of Christ himself that we are to be baptized. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've been kind of hinting at for the last uh, couple of weeks, I'm going to be preaching on baptism this morning. Uh, and we haven't done any baptisms since we've been here, so it's time that we do them, and we've decided that we're going to do some on Easter Sunday. It's a great day to be reminded of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is also represented by coming up out of the water. And so as we look forward to that, and that's four Sundays from today at the end of the month, um, I'm hopeful that some people that maybe haven't been baptized yet uh, will choose to take the step of obedience that Scripture commands us to do. And so in that aim, I decided it would be prudent to teach on baptism and that way, if anyone was unclear on what it represents and what it's all about, hopefully this will help to put us in the right direction on that. So, The Waters of Baptism is the title of the message this morning. Uh, I want to start with Romans 6, 3 through 4. Paul writes there, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, for people that grew up in the church, um, you, you know what baptism looks like. You've seen it done. You may have been baptized yourself, but as we find out what people know there very often we find out people don't really understand fully all the beautiful things symbolized by that uh, baptism and so we're going to talk about that this morning i thought it would be good to offer at first a couple definitions of some respected theologians of what is baptism and so i'm going to begin with john calvin in his institutes of the christian religion he said this definition for baptism, that baptism is the initiatory sign by which we are admitted to the fellowship of the church, that being engrafted into Christ, we may be accounted children of God. Moreover, the end for which God has given it, in parentheses he says, this I have shown to be common to all mysteries, is first that it may be conducive to our faith in him, and secondly, that it may serve the purpose of a confession among men. The nature of both institutions we shall explain in order. Baptism contributes to our faith three things, which require to be treated separately. The first object, therefore, for which it is appointed by the Lord, is to be a sign and evidence of our purification. Or, better to explain my meaning, it is a kind of sealed instrument 
by which he assures us that all our sins are so deleted, covered, and effaced that they will never come into his sight, never be mentioned, never imputed. For it is his will that all who have believed be baptized for the remission of sins. End quote. So, according to Calvin, baptism is several things, and of course, I'm only giving you about this much of chapters that he's written on it. But a few things that Calvin mentioned in that statement. It's an initiatory sign. So when someone puts faith in Christ and they want to be part of the community of believers, this was part of what was required. And in the days of the early church, very often this public sign of initiation, so to speak, could also be a perilous thing to do because if you got baptized in the public space, you were now marked as a Christian. And as you know, in certain times in Roman history and other world history, uh, that has been a thing that put many people in peril physically. So baptism is an initiatory sign. It's, it's kind of like uh, coming into the church and this is a sign that someone is ready to become part of the church. Uh, it's also conducive to faith in him. What Calvin goes on to explain is how the very act of being baptized does some kind of grace in the person being baptized, where their faith is increased, so to speak, where they feel uh, an, uh, just a little bit of additional stamp of acceptance it doesn't save them, but it helps their faith. It serves the purpose of a confession among men. It's kind of like someone who wants everyone to know who they're voting for, and so they put a bumper sticker on their car. They're not ashamed of it. Other people may be voting for that person, but they don't dare put a bumper sticker on, right? Because they don't want to get a rock thrown at them or who knows what. And so it's a confession before people. This is why when a person is going to be baptized, they usually want their family there, even if they're not part of that local church. They want their friends to come, and they should say to their coworkers, I'm getting baptized. Would you come and be a witness to it? It's a confession among men. It's saying to the world, I'm one of Jesus' people. I'm putting faith in him, and I'm never going to turn back. And then it's a sign and evidence of our purification, Calvin says. So it's through the baptism, the Holy Spirit is assuring us that our sins are, and I love the way he phrased this, deleted, covered, and effaced. Effaced is another word for meaning erased. No one, no one ever uses that word too much that I've heard. But he's giving us three words that really kind of mean the same thing, but just to let us know that when we get baptized, even though we've already put faith in Christ and we understand that he's giving us a sign and evidence that we are being purified. Isn't that great? So that's one definition of baptism from a respected theologian. Another respected theologian that I like to read from time to time is J.I. Packer. And his definition was this, that Christian baptism, which has been the form of a ceremonial washing like John's pre-Christian baptism, 
is a sign from God that signifies inward cleansing and remission of sins, spirit-wrought regeneration and new life, and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit as God's seal, testifying and guaranteeing that one will be kept safe in Christ forever. Baptism carries these meanings because first and fundamentally, it signifies union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this union with Christ is the source of every element in our salvation. All right, let's look at some of Packer's points there. And we're going to take to the scriptures he referenced there too to see also where where he's getting these ideas. But first, it signifies inward cleansing and remission of sins. So let's look at some of the scriptures that Packer mentioned there. The first one is Acts twenty-two sixteen. It says, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, we need to be clear that the baptism itself is not the washing of sins in the sense that that's all you have to do um, or that that actually washes away the sins. It's a symbolic washing away of what God has done through your faith in Christ. And so is it possible that someone could go get baptized who never had a genuine profession or never had really truly believed in Christ in their heart, but they said they did? That's possible. We are not always able to discern perfectly who is going to be a true, a, a true converted person and who isn't. But when you get baptized, in addition to you already had put faith in Christ, now you have this sense to understand better that you've been washed away. You've had your sins washed away. They've been cleaned. You've been cleansed. You're, and you're being sanctified and we'll talk about that a little more later. The next uh, verse he had here was 1 Corinthians 6.11. He lists a whole bunch of vile sins to the church. And then he says, and such were some of you. Well, how dare you say that about me, Paul? But he lists a bunch of things, including some pretty horrific things. We'd say that's not good at all. And then he says, hey, you church, such were some of you. But... You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And we see this theme throughout that the baptism is this strong uh, indicator and a reminder to us, just like we just did the Lord's Supper. Here's a representation of the body and blood of Jesus to remind us of something. Baptism is something to confirm something in us that's, that's already been happening. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul writes about husbands loving their wives, that they're supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, verse 25, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having done what? cleansed her now we're not talking about husbands and wives although some husbands might want to cleanse their wives with a washing of water but he's talking about he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so christ 
sanctifies the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So we see these phrases throughout, these representations. And then finally, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So again, this gets back to the idea that Packer was saying, the baptism signifies inward cleansing and remission of sins. It symbolizes that by us going into the water and coming out. Then he said it was a sign of spirit-wrought regeneration and new life. For this, we go to Titus 3.5, which tells us that Christ saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how again and again and again we see the concept of washing, being cleansed, being purified. And by the way, this is nothing new just to the New Testament. You can find all about this when the laws about the temple are put in place and the priests and all of the things that had to be done to be prepared to go into the temple. So this is not a new symbolism that comes about in the New Testament. It's actually something that uh, people would have been familiar with. Next, Packer says it's a sign of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit as God's seal, testifying and guaranteeing that one will be kept safe in Christ forever. This is, uh, I'm going to read here in a moment one of my favorite verses for for confidence and assurance and salvation, but um, this is a beautiful and wonderful thing. That God, through our obedience to him and our faith in him, can actually testify for us through this act of baptism. And that guarantees we will be kept safe in Christ forever. Again, accepting people that may be false falsely being baptized and, and not being honest about their faith. But for the one that's truly put faith in Christ and gets baptized, he promises us that we will be sealed by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. It, it, it almost makes you feel like this is part of being part of the church was baptism was required, Right? Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the idea here being that whether you came from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, but you put faith in Christ and you became part of his church, to do that, you were baptized. And Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, again, this is one of my go-tos if you need assurance in your salvation. Paul writes, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. This is not like, well, I believe Jesus is a historical figure because people wrote about him, so he must have been real. No, this is believed in him for salvation. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There are, sadly, Christians that don't believe in the assurance that you can actually have assurance in your faith, and they struggle through the very end, and they live their whole lives wondering if they're going to lose their faith or lose their salvation. 
I don't know how you get around this one, though. If you've truly put faith in Christ for your salvation, he has sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit, and that is a guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And what Packer was saying there is part of that being sealed. That happens from the moment of faith, but to help your faith and help you to understand that, you get baptized, and that's something you can always look back from. When the enemy comes and says, no, you never really put faith in Christ, you can remember, no, I did. And I was baptized and I was sealed. And I have assurance of my faith. And then he said it carries these meanings because first and fundamentally it signifies union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Here we get back to the passage I started with that says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set, from, set free from sin. So again, we see in Romans, Paul is clearly saying, hey, when you go down in that baptism water and you come back up again, that's a symbol. It's not only a symbol of the sanctifying work and the cleansing work, it's also a symbol of you dying and being raised with Christ. And then it's, he said our union with Christ is the source of every element in our salvation. That's the most important thing. Are we united with Christ? Colossians 2.11 said, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, which many take that to be baptism, many scholars. 1 John 5.11 and 12 says, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life was in his Son, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Our union with Christ is the most important thing. So why do we get baptized? Well, first off, we get baptized because Christ commanded it. That's a good reason, right? If there were no other reasons, that would be a good reason. There are other reasons, but this is primary. We ought to do what Christ commands us to do. Here I go again to Calvin. And he said this, The first thing that the Lord sets out for us is that baptism should be a token and proof of our cleansing. Or, the better to explain what I mean, it is like a sealed document to confirm to us that all our sins are so abolished, remitted, and effaced that they can never come to his sight, be recalled, or charged against us. For he wills that all who believe be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, that's what Calvin said, but Calvin's not Scripture, right? We need to see what Scripture says. Does Scripture tell us we ought to be baptized? Yes. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, not baptizing some of them, not baptizing half of them or two-thirds or anything, baptizing them, meaning all who are disciples, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, which also gives us part of our um, means of how we baptize. We baptize in those names. So Christ commanded it. That's a good reason to be baptized if you are a believer. And so did Peter command it to new believers in Acts 2.38 when he gave this sermon on the day of Pentecost and he was full of the Holy Spirit and it was such a powerful sermon that people were shouting out, what are we to do about this? His answer was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we have commands from Scripture. We ought to do it. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, you need to get baptized. Now, I want to go through a few things. This would take, actually, each one of these points almost could be a a lecture in itself. So I'm only giving you like a 30,000-foot view of things here. Um, And if you want to read all of the commentaries and stuff on the rest of this, you sure can. But there's a few things that are controversial within churches about baptism. And I thought it was appropriate that we at least cover some of this. So first question is this. Should infants be baptized? So there, is, uh, there are a number of churches, as most of you are aware, that do what's called pedo-baptism or infant baptism. And I just want to explain, hopefully I'm accurately representing from their perspective, why they think that is needing to be done. So it's a covenant-based um, sort of theology that's behind it. So what they believe is that baptism replaced circumcision as a mark of the covenant. So in the Old Testament for Jewish parents, they had a requirement on the eighth day when a male child was born, they had to circumcise the baby, and that was a mark of them being part of the covenant that God had given to Abraham. So they say now, because we don't have to do that, uh, then parents need to baptize their infants as a sign of their entering into the covenant. So that's, that's one of the viewpoints out there, and uh, that's what so there's a lot of churches that take this viewpoint, and it's far more than that. What I, I've just given you a very brief overview, but that's where they get their understanding of it. Now, I don't agree with that, and here's some of the problems that I have with it, and others do too. Is first of all, and most important to me personally, is that Scripture does not command anywhere that people baptize their babies. Um, it does command Jewish people to, va- to circumcise their children. It never commands uh, Christian believers to baptize infants. So if Scripture doesn't tell you directly, then I think that's something you should be careful of, of what you do. The other thing is, baptism does not confer faith onto. Some denominations believe that that's what happens. That you're, as an act of baptizing that child you are giving them faith that will come to fruition at some point. Um, But that's not scriptural either. Um, Salvation does not come through baptism. So by baptizing a baby, you're not guaranteeing anything. And a lot of those churches, by the way, they wouldn't say you are. They they have some very, uh, in my mind, kind of convoluted ways of trying to explain how they think that that's confirming something but not everything, and uh, I just disagree respectfully. 
if, if we want to have an outward sign of our children's participation in the church, we do offer what we call dedication ceremony to the Lord. We have a parent comes up with their child and they say, I want to dedicate this child to the Lord. And we do that. And I think that's a valid thing to do. And that's a way of saying to the congregation and to the Lord as well that we're going to commit to raising this child as a Christian child. Um, but what we do, and we don't do infant baptism, we do what we call believer's baptism. Others call it different things. But basically our beliefs are that baptism should only be done for those who have made a public proclamation of their faith. Why? Because Romans 9, 10, 9, and 10 says, because if you believe in your heart that... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he is saved, you, uh, that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So a confession, a public proclamation of that faith is important. The other part, the inward part, we can't always discern. I mentioned that earlier. Someone could seem very sincere, and we may not be able to tell that they're actually not being sincere, but... Public proclamation of faith should be required. They should demonstrate, at least on some level, a regenerative work uh, being done in their life. That's not perfection, by the way. I mean, if we all had to wait till we had you know, all our sanctification done, none of us would ever get baptized, right? But it, in fact, we look in Scripture and see many examples of people who got baptized just with very little information. Right? We had the, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he got baptized, and he had just been given a very quick overview of the gospel. And then he says, hey, well, why can't I get baptized then? And, and he does. So that, that's evidence that you don't necessarily have to have um, what some churches will call a confirmation class or something like that. I don't think Scripture tells us that has to happen. However, uh, that third point or that last point on the slide there is that they need to understand and can articulate what they believe. And that's up to elders and pastors to try to discern the best we can uh, whether someone truly believes uh, what they're, or they understand the, the faith as we need to understand it. All right. Next question is this. Can believing children be baptized? Is there some age limit that we have to be 18 or we have to be 12 or we have to be anything? Well, my answer to that is, and I think this is biblical, if they can reasonably display an understanding of the faith and they have made a volitional choice to follow Jesus and they're not being uh, pushed into it by a Sunday school teacher or a parent and they truly want it and they have said, I love Jesus and I want to I follow him with my whole life, then they should be baptized. And I would never set an age limit on that. They're, but generally speaking, we, we would say there's probably some ages at the lower end that we wouldn't be able to discern whether they truly understand what they're committing to. But children can be baptized. All right, next one. Sprinkle, immerse, or pour? Okay, this, is, this one has is, is got a lot of theology, believe it or not, behind it. Um, a lot of people think it's just not that important, but uh, sprinkling means they just kind of, sometimes they dip their finger in and sprinkle your face with water. Pouring is where they take a jug and they pour it over your head. And immersion is where you dip your body all the way down into the water and come back out. 
which is what we do. So there's different positions on this. Now, Reformed theologians have held that the most important sign of baptism is the cleansing, the sanctifying, the regeneration. Um, that's what they have claimed. That's the number one priority of uh, baptism. And, then, and so they think that sprinkling works fine for that part. They don't believe you need to be submerged. Um, and they'll point to things that, such as uh, the Old Testament where Moses sprinkled the people. Um, certain items in the temple were sprinkled, not immersed. And they would, so they say it's the, the mark of sanctification. It's a setting aside of something for a purpose. So generally, I don't think Reformed people would say you can't be immersed, but they would say sprinkling is just fine. Let's just sprinkle you, okay? So, um, but that's why they have that, that theory. It's, it's more from the sanctification side, and God had other, there's other examples in Scripture where sprinkling was uh, sufficient to sanctify items for the temple and so on. Um, Baptists, they hold that baptism signifies the person dying to self and being raised from, with Christ, which I just read from, uh, I read it twice actually already, Romans 6, 3 to 7. It's very clear that Paul certainly made that uh, connection, that you're dying with Christ and you're being raised with him in the baptism. And so uh, Baptists would say, no, you have, you have to immerse because if you're going to represent someone dying, they got to go down in the water and come back up. And they would also point to a lot of um, word studies in Scripture because all the accounts of baptism in the New Testament either specifically refer to immersion or they refer to needing a lot of water. There's a couple that say, well, there was a lot of water there, so they baptized. Well, if you were just sprinkling, you don't really need a lot of water for that, right? So there's, there's scriptural evidence we can look to to say that was probably, at least in the, in the very early days of the New Testament, that was what was being done, was the full immersion. So we hold to the Baptist view, uh, as the Christian Missionary Alliance and as Oasis Church, uh, that immersion seems to be indicated in Scripture, um, Again, the analysis of the original languages, that seems to be heavier towards immersion. Um, but a case can be made for the Reformed position. And special circumstances may apply, right? It is possible you could have someone who becomes a, a believer who's bound to a wheelchair or bedridden or hospitalized with all kinds of things hooked up, and that may not be possible for them to be immersed. And so I'm not so, so dogmatic that I wouldn't say I would make a special exception in a case like that. So um, then the next thing, too, is that uh, a question. This one has actually been asked me many times. In fact, there's people at Oasis Church who have asked me this. Should I be baptized again? And... There's two categories generally that I've personally experienced. There might be others. One is I was in a, one of those infant baptisms when I was a kid. I had nothing to do with it. My parents had me baptized. I didn't feel that was me speaking for my faith, and I want to be baptized again. And then, on the other hand, you have people that 
they either say, well, I got baptized, but I don't know that I was really following Christ yet then, or I backslid away and I came back to Christ, so I want to be baptized again. And I will be really honest with you. I have struggled with this. I've struggled with answering this question because uh, there's, so, there's a lot of nuance involved. But um, I'll tell you, I'm going to give you another Packer quote here on something he said that leads me to think that he, uh, well, he's very clear that people don't need to be baptized again. That's his opinion. But here's what he said. The outward sign does not automatically or magically convey the inward blessings that it signifies, and the candidate's professions of faith are not always genuine. I said that a bit ago. Peter had to tell the newly baptized Simon Magus, that's Simon the magician, that he was still unrenewed in heart. As a sign of a once-for-all event, baptism should be administered to a person only once. Baptism is real and valid if water and the triune name are used, that is, baptized in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, even if it is an adult whose profession turns out to have been hypocritical. Simon Magus believed or received baptism once, and if he came to faith, real faith later, it would have been incorrect to baptize him again. We don't know if Simon came back to Christ later. We don't, that, the scripture doesn't tell us that. But I want to read this passage so you can see what we're talking about here. This is in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called grace. Great. And, he, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing, great, uh, seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So in this situation, what J.I. Packer is saying is that Simon might not have had a real conversion before he was baptized. Because after this interaction, it seems like he was still kind of in it for the money and trying to, he saw something popular and what was going on. We can't be entirely sure if he was ever saved again. The scripture doesn't lay that out for us. Um, I've heard people claim that based on his uh, 
based on Peter's reaction to him that he had never been saved and never would be saved, I don't think I can read that into the scripture. But the point here is getting back to what Packer said is that Simon Magus received baptism once, and if he came to real faith later, it would have been incorrect to baptize him again. So if you had the person that came and said, hey, I, I was 13 years old, I got baptized, I, I, I did, I felt like I believed at the time, but I don't now, and then I went and, and served the world for a while, and I came back to Christ, and now I'm here, and now I want to get baptized again. Then based on this, we would probably say that's not necessary. In fact, an argument could be made that you're crucifying Christ again. There's a whole thing on that. I'm not making that argument myself. So I hope you understand everything I'm presenting here is not necessarily all my opinions. I'm trying to give you a broad swath of what beliefs are out there so you can understand. I would say this, though. I have baptized people that were baptized as infants. The Baptist church does not consider an infant baptism as a baptism. So if you came into an, a, most Baptist churches and you said, I'm an adult now, I was baptized as a Lutheran when I was a child or a Catholic as a child or whatever it might be, but now I'm, I, now I'm truly following Christ, I want to be baptized, they would baptize you not considering that to be a real baptism the first time. And so I have baptized people that were baptized as infants and, and they felt conscience-driven uh, to be baptized as a believing person should be allowed to do so. So... Now, whether I'm right or wrong on that, uh, hopefully the Lord will teach me more as I go. But I want to say this, with all those factors where, um, where baptism is contentious sometimes, infant baptism or not, uh, immersion, sprinkling, or pouring, what's the best way to do it, um, what's the right uh, thing to say while you're doing it, and all of those things. Uh, Despite all those disagreements among Christians, there is something that almost every Christian agrees with, that we should be doing baptisms. And, for example, two of my very favorite preachers and teachers have a great disagreement on the infant baptism. And I've shared this with some of you before who have asked me. I encourage you to go watch it. R.C. Sproul, who I hardly disagree with anything on, I disagree with because he's believed in infant baptism, and John MacArthur was a Reformed Baptist, so they had a lot of, mostly their, their theology similar, but he believed in believer's baptism, which you have to make a profession of faith before you can get baptized. And they had a debate on it. You can go on YouTube or on Ligonier's website, and you can see or, or listen to uh, both men make their best compelling argument for why their position is good. And, and why I say that is because no matter where you fall on any of these positions, there's going to be a really solid, God-believing, honest theologian that is on the other side of it on this issue. So we need to have some grace towards others who may have different feelings on this issue than us. And so we all should be doing it as the agreement. So it's a command of Christ and there's much more I could say on it, but I've used up a lot of time already. When you go to lunch, I've uh, put some, or, well, they might be out there yet. I don't know if they are, but um, on the tables, there should be some uh, conversation starters because I want you to go and have lunch together and talk about baptism. Share about your baptism. You read the questions on the card, and that'll help you get going. But, but sit with someone maybe that you don't sit with all the time and get to know someone new. And let's encourage each other to grow in our faith. And you should be encouraged by hearing the baptism stories as well as by telling your own and reminding yourself of that seal that you received. 
So with that, I'll close the message and we'll get ready for one last song and then we're going to have uh, lunch together. But before we do that, let's pray that God would bless this message and help us to discern as best possible what we ought to do. Lord, thank you for the word of God. And in this topic, Lord, we know that there are many disagreements, even among great theologians. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help to guide us to the right position on each item. And Lord, I pray again that if anyone here has committed to Christ but has not yet been baptized, would you convict them, Lord, of their sin of disobeying your word so that they would write that disobedience, repent of it, and be baptized. In Jesus' name, amen.